You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here this morning, my friends. And would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. This is where we find ourselves this morning as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. This is our fourth message in this section. This morning we will reinforce and add some of what uh, add to some of what we've already learned and then we will read, explain and apply verse 33 uh, addressing the third of three costs that Jesus lays out to the crowds for true discipleship. Now, before we do, let's recite and spend a few minutes on the next portion of the corporate memory verse. Our corporate memory verse for the month of August comes from the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, specifically verses 11 through 12. So read them aloud um, with me. Ready? And he gave... Okay, well last week I said these verses and the surrounding context give us God's plan and pattern for his church. And I taught through that extensively. And um, we looked at Paul's main point in chapters one through three. If you remember this, as we discussed the transition then into chapter four. And I mentioned that what can be said about this particular chapter, chapter four of the book of Ephesians, can be divided into terms or understood in terms of, if you remember, group, gifts, growth, gain, and goal. That's what I said we could divide our chapter four of Ephesians into. And last week I covered group and gifts, speaking of God's pattern for the church, his plan for the church, how the subject of gifts can be divided into two divisions, gifts in the church and gifts to the church. So if that sounds um, foreign to you, um, because you weren't here last week, uh, you can go back and listen. Would love you to do that. Uh, we have, uh, I, I thought, necessary by the Lord's leading to spend extra time in these verses in the beginning before we move into Luke, and we did so last week, and we'll do just a little bit again today. 
Um, but it's important for us to understand God's pattern and God's plan, God's design and God's desire for the church. So today I just want to address the next in that line. I talked about gifts or group gifts, and today we'll talk about growth. Growth. So here we're addressing the purpose of God giving these gifts, gifts within the church and gifts to the church. That's to say, why did he give gifts to the church? Why did he give these gifts in the church? To the church, remember the spiritual leaders, and gifts in the church, meaning all Christians are given spiritual gifts when they become Christians. Why did he give these gifts to the church? And why did he give these gifts within the church? Well, what is his reasoning? That's what we're asking. Well, within our verses, that moves us to this phrase, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So this is not very difficult to understand, right? This is not very difficult for us to understand. The reason God gave these spiritual leaders to his church is to equip them for the work of ministry, that's the reason why God has given gifts to the church, the spiritual leadership to the church, to equip the saints for what? The work of ministry. You're in ministry. You didn't know that. This is not difficult. The reason God gave these spiritual leaders to a church is to equip them for the work of ministry. So to grow his church, to grow his church, to equip his church, to grow them up in the gospel to equip them to share this gospel, to be ministers of it. And so we ask this question, and to build them up, to give them understanding in the word, to make them holy people. That's why he's given spiritual leadership to the church. Now, here's what we want to address for just a few minutes. How does this happen, and what does this mean? God's goal first is this group, this unified group, Ephesians 4, of believers who are gifted by the Spirit when they come to salvation, and then he gives spiritual leadership to the church. There's a specific function, and that's for growth. Why does he do that, or, and how does he do that? What does it look like, and how is it accomplished? Okay? So, we'll state it simply, it happens through the teaching of the Word of God. That's how it happens. The, that is the job of the spiritual leader, to teach the Word. And the Word does the, equip, the equipping work. The Word does it when he just teaches the Word. It's 2 Timothy 2 says this. Paul tells the young pastor, Timothy, who's going to be a spiritual leader of the local church or of multiple local churches. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So listen, the apostles' teaching given to faithful men will equip them. The word of God, the apostles' teaching. Later in that same epistle, Paul says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, what? 
equipped for every good work. So it's not the spiritual leader's own ideas or own thoughts or own stories or own encouragements which equips God's people. It's the word of God. Jesus told Peter, lead my sheep by feeding my sheep. That's essentially what he said. This means the pastor's, listen, main job then is to study and teach. That's how he leads God's people. That's how God grows God's people, teaching them what the word says and what it means by what it says and how they need to obey it and to change in their lives. That's, that's how God's people grow. They hear the word of God and they understand the, what it says and the meaning by what it says and then they grow spiritually by becoming what the word says. So that's how this is supposed to work. Our pastors here at TFC, then their essential job is the ministry of the word and of prayer. That's their essential job. And, they, and to do that, they must study. Our pastors, their main job is to study and then to teach. That's the main job of the pastors here at the Field Church. Second Timothy 2 says this. Paul says again to him, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He must rightly handle it. He must study to rightly handle this word so that what he is teaching is clear and accurate. And uh, if you think about all the qualifications for spiritual leadership, there's uh, in, in 1 Timothy and Titus, they're all character-based, except for one uh, ministerial skill set, and that is the ability to what? Teach. To teach. So that's why Paul instructs young Pastor Timothy again in his first letter. He says this, keep a close eye or a close watch on yourself. There's your character and your what? And your teaching. And if you persist in this, then you will look at this, save both yourself and who else? Your hearers, the church. This is exactly what he's saying. So without this diligent and faithful studying and teacher and, and teaching, the pastor will not accurately handle the word. And therefore, he'll lead himself and lead his hearers astray. You understand how this works? This is God's plan and God's pattern and God's design and God's desire for his church. And, and we can make sense of this, and that's what I'm trying to do in this time during this month in this memory verse. It, it's, it's worthy of our time. So listen, the pastor, if he's not studying the word, he will not know what to say. He will not know what it means. He will not know what God intended by what he wrote. His hearers will be led astray, being taught by, uh, b to believe false doctrine. And then he must study in order to do this or else he won't be able to do what he needs to do. So you want your pastor's main job to be studying, teaching, and praying. And that's different from our members, from you. That's different from you. Um, the pastor's role is different. Listen, just like in the family and just like in the Trinity, we see equal value among members, yet different roles and responsibilities among members. So it is with, with the church. 
So also, this is how God wants it in the church. The members and the pastor are equal in value before God, right? I'm no more special than he is. Paul actually said that he was the worst of what? Sinners. But the roles and responsibilities differ, right? This can be viewed like a professor and his students. The professor is set in his role. The students are set in theirs. This is acknowledged by all parties. And if the professor were to do things that were required by the students, then who then would, would teach? That's it. Very simple. You see, this is very practical. Someone must teach, and yet in the church, there is also this very spiritual aspect to this, to this teaching, that God has called this person. He has equipped this person. He has gifted this person. He has commissioned this person, this spiritual leader, to teach. Right? So this is how it works. And it's not that others couldn't do it. Okay? I'm no smarter than you are. But they would have to be called by God. They would have to spend their time in their preparation. And, and they would have to, therefore, be faithful to the word in order for this to happen. And so the pastor is the one who does this for them while they have other jobs that they partake in specifically acts of service. Listen, and if the pastor neglects this, he'll have nothing to teach, and uh, he won't be able to grow the congregation. So that's why James says this. Not many of you should become what? Teachers, my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So the spiritual leader's job is to teach the word. This means uh, that he must teach the congregation for themselves. Listen, for themselves, so don't just understand this intellectually. This should change the whole of you. You should leave hearing the word of God and saying, I need to change. I need to become more holy. I, I, need, to, I need to align myself with this. This is not just for your mind, right? This, is, this should affect the, the whole of your life. These are the very words of God. But then to have an understanding of the word also intellectually so that you can understand what God is saying logically in his word. Then also to, to after coming to a holiness and a knowledge of the truth, um, it includes equipping so that you can give the, the scriptures to other people, teach them to others. So now Paul says next, these spiritual leaders are to equip who? The saints. So that is... The believers, the members of the flock, those entrusted to his care, the, those souls that he's keeping watch over, right? The ones who he will have to give an account for, as the epistle to the Hebrews tells us. Here in Ephesians, this is one of the places where we understand fully that the church is made up of who? Believers. The church is made up of believers. The church is for believers. Right? That's, that's what uh, Sunday morning should be geared towards, practically stated. The church service is for the believer. It's for the saint. It's not for the unbeliever. Although unbelievers and guests are present, and they're coming in here all the time. In this service, the next service, last week and next week, they'll be here. Coming in, and they're present but that is not who the pastor is preparing for. That's not who the pastor is preparing for. The unbelievers will come in and listen to how great this is. The message will be foreign to them, but he doesn't change the message for them, right? Yet if the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts, illuminating their minds, bringing them to salvation, he will use the same word to bring them 
to a knowledge of the truth and to salvation. So the believer, unbeliever isn't saved by any other means, right? There's only one means. It's the word of God. So we don't say, well, what will work for unbelievers? What do you mean by that, right? The word of God will work. That's how faith comes. And so, therefore, it, it comes through this knowledge of the truth. I didn't know this truth, and now I know this truth, and God has implanted this truth in my heart, and repentance and faith comes about, right? And so you see, God uses the same means to grow the believer and save the lost. And so, we, in our verse, we affirm all of this is for the believer. That's what the intention of the preparation is for. That's why church membership is so important. We hold a high standard. The pastor must know that his church, the people, are truly part of God's church. That means that they're truly saved, right? And the reason why this must happen is because if he's to lead the people with the word, he won't be able to lead these people if they have not submitted their lives under the authority of the word and under the authority of of the Lord Jesus, right? So unbelievers haven't agreed to allow the word to be their authority. So can you imagine a pastor trying to lead with any kind of consistency over any kind of period of time someone who has no commitment to living under the authority of the word of God? You're just gonna have a bunch of problems all the time. And so they, they, they may think a few things here and there are very practically helpful. They'll come in and they'll say, man, that was really helpful. That was encouraging, you know, or they won't say anything to me because I yelled at them, right? But either way, they, will, they, they may think a few things are helpful, but they won't leave and submit their lives completely to it. You see, they might get something contrary in the news or they might think something entirely different. They might look at something on the internet and they might prefer that to the advice of the Bible. And so they'll take a little bit here and then a little bit there. The pastor does not want membership full of sheep and goats that are are mixed. Children of the flesh, indistinguishable from children of the promise. Right? They're gonna have nothing but problems because their authority is not the word of God. If, If you don't know Christ in here, your authority has to become the word of God, right? What it says. And so if, if, if they think something should be different and you try to convince them with the word, they won't stand corrected. So churches that have low membership standards in this way, not assessing salvation, will be trying to lead unbelievers with an authority that they do not understand, nor do they submit to, right? And, and there will be goats kind of biting their heels all the time. You know, you got a sheep, a bunch of sheep in a pen, and, and some of them are just listening right up. They know, they know the deal. They're under the shepherd's care, and, and some of them are just nipping at the heels the whole time, right? And they're not true sheep. That is why we cannot, for any reason, especially for the sake of church growth, um, do anything different but then call the church what it truly is, which is a family of, of believers, so this is why I love members meetings here at TFC. It's the safest, one of the safest places I know, right? And, uh, and, I, and I think that anyone in here who is a member would agree because we have fenced membership so highly. So we know everyone in here will submit to the same authority, which is the word of what? Of God. 
Unbelievers will come in, they're going to hear, and we certainly want them to hear, and we want them to be saved, and we want them to join the local assembly, but it will take salvation and then submission for them to enter this family. So spiritual leaders, as the gifts to the church are to equip the saints with the work of God, the believers, and finally in our verse it says, for the what? Work of ministry, and this is where the gifts in the church come in. Just a few more minutes, okay, we're right on time. The saints are equipped to do the ministry of God's church. Did you know that? You are the ones who are called to do the ministry. The pastor's job is not to do the ministry. Right? By the word, by teaching the word and by equipping them in their various giftings, the pastor's job is to equip the believers to do this ministry. It's the saints' job. The pastor must study and teach and equip the saints, and then the saints, therefore, do the work of of ministry. If he does the work of the ministry, who's going to study? Who's going to teach? Right? Equal in value, different in roles and responsibilities. So let me explain this just for a few more minutes. So what is this work of ministry? Well, it's using their holiness that they've been equipped in, their, their understanding of the word that they've been equipped in, their giftings that they've been equipped in, their proficiency with the gospel that they've been equipped in to, uh, to, to do a few things, and I'll start with this, to serve each other, other members. That's primarily what is identified here in Ephesians 4. It's to serve each other, right? To serve other believers, So to build them up, to do practical things even, like hold babies or show hospitality or bring meals, right? Titus says encourage uh, older women to teach younger women to love their husbands and their children. These are ways that service is is, uh, played out in the church. It can be all kinds of ministry to the saints. It means members saying, I want to do this ministry, and the elders saying, God bless you, (laughs) and overseeing them, right? That's it. You know, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints do the work of ministry. The, the pastors and the teachers, the, lead, the spiritual leaders, equip the saints to do the work of ministry, to go to, the, to, the, to, the, to the, their neighbors, to go to the nations, to, uh, to serve their brother, to, uh, to take care of other people, right? They're just equipping them in their holiness, their understanding of the word, their, um, their own proficiency with the gospel. He, they're doing the work of ministry. He's equipping them to do it. So this past week, for an example, Dakota said, Dakota in there, here? I don't, yep, there he is, sitting by himself. Um, we love you, Dakota. He said, I'd like to lead a time of prayer for Afghanistan and the effects of COVID. And, uh, and we said, we'd love for you to do that. And uh, how can we help you? And, and he did it, right? He let it out. We just got to get the word out, and, um, and people showed up here, and they prayed on Friday night for Afghanistan and for, for the effects of COVID and a few other things. Another example is when uh, Jenny DePhillips, Katie Hill, Laura Coley, some of them are in the room. I won't point them out. They're right over there in there. Um, Jenny's not here, but Matt is. Um, they said, we want to lead a trunk or treat for our families, and we said that would be awesome. So listen, it's the ministry to the church. It's also ministry to the lost, obviously. It's equipping the saints to minister to each other, and then it's ministering, they're ministering to the lost, right? So, so that is equipping them in their holiness, their understanding, their evangelism, their ministry to others. They're sharing the gospel outside the church. 
And so let me just say this really very, very uh, plainly and, and might be surprising to you. It's not primarily the pastor's job to go reach the lost. And that is oftentimes how the church thinks. We say, well, it's definitely the pastor's job and, and we really hope they re- go reach some lost people. We'll be here to welcome them when they come in. That's not how it works, right? Although that is the job of all Christians and the pastor will reach the lost through their preaching, the pastor is to equip the believers with the gospel to go and reach the lost, right? That's their job. So the pastor, you know, we, we, we did this here in the beginning a lot. All of our pastors were out and about and we were the main ones sharing the faith, while sharing our faith while we were equipping our church to be able to do this. Now it's your job to go to Starbucks, go to your neighborhood and evangelize. Go to the nations and evangelize, right? The pastor equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. This is the effective model. Or else a handful of pastors will be out all the time. And in essence, listen, overlooking the saints, overlooking the saints, their flock, not looking to their people, but looking past their people to, more, to, to others. And then they're going to be stretched by the end of the week. And guess what Sunday sermons will be? They'll be superficial. And then the church will stay immature because the sermons or the teaching from the various pastors is superficial. Because they're not studying and teaching. They're going out to reach the lost. But then who's growing the church? So you see how this has got to work? This has got to function this way. This is the way God designs. This is the way God desires. This is his plan. This is his pattern. And, and so you have to do, you know that your job to, is to evangelize your neighbors and to evangelize the nations. That's your job. And this is meant to equip you to do that. And so we can keep going on this, but it's to equip these believers um, in every area, to, to serve their families, to, to reach the lost, to serve each other, to minister to the nations. This is God's plan and pattern. So it's this unified group of believers that the spiritual leader is growing to use their gifts. And, um, and next week we'll, we'll finish with uh, the gain and the goal of this. But I bet you didn't expect we were going to be teaching through the book of, of Ephesians while we were teaching also through the book of Luke. Okay? So we'll teach through two books at a time. So... Now, let's turn to Luke, and uh, we, we got about half our time left, okay? So let's turn to the book of Luke and read Luke 14, verses 25 through, uh, chapter 14, verses 25 through 35, and, uh, and we'll finish out um, this section next week. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, here's our verse, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, I've said this repeatedly in the first three sermons on these verses, but what we're seeing here is Jesus making clear the conditions for true discipleship. These are the conditions. Jesus is laying out, listen now, the marks of saving faith. He's making clear what it will take, what he requires, what will not work to be his true disciple. We've discussed the use of the word disciple, remember, in the three instances that he uses them, in these parallel statements that he has in this passage. And it generally refers to a learner or a pupil. But Jesus is defining here what it means to be his disciple. Right? In the book of Acts, the term disciple is synonymous with being a Christian. It's synonymous with salvation. And his discipleship requires your life. That's what he's saying. This is what must happen to be a Christian. He must become your Lord. He must become your God. He must become your authority. And he must have the full allegiance of your life. He requires repentance of sin, repentance of other priorities, even virtuous priorities. He requires one to come into complete submission to him, complete relation to him, intimate relation to him. Full obedience to him. Total commitment to him. This is what it will take. This is what it will take for you to apprehend salvation. It's an amazing thing that if you believe you can apprehend this salvation, it can become yours. You believe it? It's yours. Why? Because it's a free gift. While it is a free gift, there's a, a high cost, which is your life. And this is the way the Bible talks about this salvation. It's giving yourself completely to the sovereign Lord who has provided forgiveness, eternal salvation, and new life. And he will not be treated as an option. His words cannot be treated as suggestions. And he must never be marginalized. Or he will not be yours and you will not be his. That's what he's saying here. 
If anyone desires to still have the world, he can have it, but he cannot have Christ. He is not worthy to have him. But if a man to have, is to have Christ, his allegiance must shift, his priorities must shift, his obedience must shift, his love must shift. That's mu- what must happen. That's what will happen if someone is to have salvation. And Jesus is making clear these requirements. That's what he's doing. And the cost needs to be honestly assessed. You need to assess this cost. The price must be seriously considered. Seriously considered. Before coming to him. That's to say if, if a person must know the true cost, if they don't, and they don't know whether they'll be able to pay this cost or not, in due time, their spiritual life will be abandoned. And they will let, leave it unfinished. It's going to be a thing of mockery, he says, to others who observe this and to God. It would just be a thing of mockery. So when tested, they'll melt away. It will be a temporary spiritual life marked by impulsivity. It's going to be foolishness or pride that led him there, naivety, zeal, but not according to knowledge. And their temporary commitment to Christ will be revealed as fake, impure, and useless. The temporariness of it will be true, but the, the, the faith will be fake. And the outcome will be deadly, and they'll end up in hell. That's exactly what this passage is saying. That's why this passage is teaching us, I've titled this, the stop and count the cost of true discipleship. And that's exactly what he's saying here. And today, he mentions this third and final cost, which is giving up your possessions. So, let's understand this final cost by making our way to it briefly. Number one, what we saw in our headings as Jesus made this cost of true discipleship crystal clear is the accompaniment of the crowd. In verse 25, he says, now great crowds accompanied. Luke writes, now great crowds accompanied Jesus. Right? And then secondly, from there, we saw the intentionality of Jesus. In verse 25b, it says that Jesus turned and he said to them, Jesus boldly declares the requirements for salvation up front. Can I tell you something from this? What we learn about Jesus here is that he doesn't speak charmingly in euphemisms. You know what euphemisms are? They're rewordings. They're understatements. They're um, uh, uh, synonyms to lessen the blow. Right? It's a rewording, or it's a series of understatements to ensure that the message isn't rejected, that he and the message aren't rejected. Jesus doesn't speak in euphemisms. He speaks plainly, clearly. It's not that he focuses his attention on charismatic speaking in order to win people's affections. He speaks plainly, right? And, um, and so this is very, very important. This is the idea of boldness. Now, let me just tell you, tell you this briefly. Boldness... Um, you know, the, the, the pastor shouldn't speak with half-truths, nor should you as a Christian sharing your faith. Life is too short to speak in half-truths and cleverly give some kind of euphemism in order to call someone to um, what isn't true Christianity. And, um, 
And it's really important that you speak with boldness. Acts 28 says that the apostles proclaimed the kingdom and, and they taught about the Lord Jesus with all what? Boldness. And, and Paul, he writes this in the book of Ephesians when asking the church of, in Ephesus to pray for him. He says, pray that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth, what? Boldly. Boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And he says that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That's how you ought to speak. Now, I want to just say something here. The term bold that's often used in the, in the, in the um, scriptures, it's made up of two Greek words that gives us our true meaning. It means all speech. All speech. That's what it means to speak boldly. So it really doesn't have anything to do with your tone of voice or your volume or the aggressiveness of what you're saying. Really, it has all to do with the content. Declaring the whole truth, giving full disclosure of the truth up front. Not saying, I'll just let a little bit out now and then keep them coming back and I'll let out a little bit more later. Jesus spoke with boldness, all speech. He was front-loaded on everything that he said. He was front-loaded, not back-loaded. Right? And so this is really, really important. Acts 4 says, And now look, Lord, upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Right? Acts 4, again, when they prayed, the whole place shook, and they continued to speak the word with great boldness. Second Corinthians 3, since we have such a great hope, we are very bold. And um, so, this is what Jesus does here. And while he does it, he makes clear, number three, the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. He says, first, it's loving Christ more than family, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, and brothers, and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. The term here means to love, one, to love them less, right? And that's clearly what he means here. Number two, he says it must, he requires a loyalty that endures suffering, that endures suffering. Now, you must understand this. Uh, I, I, I can't get back, get, get back into everything that we've said on this, but let me tell you, this is not, when he says bear your cross, they didn't understand this as what Jesus had done because Jesus had not yet told them about his cross, told them about his death, and they had not uh, yet understood this in terms of, uh, or had not at all understood this in terms of some metaphor, like, you know, well, I gotta deal with this person and that's my cross to bear, Right? That's not, what, that's not what he means by this, and that's not how they would understand it. They would understand this very literally, that people who took up their cross were heading to execution. They were deemed as guilty. That's it, very plain and simple. They were, they were people who had been deemed guilty and were heading to their execution. And what he's saying there is that's what must, that, that's your attitude, that, that's the attitude you must have if you were to be a Christian for the sake of following me. Now you might say, well, 
I don't really know if that's going to happen to me. It doesn't happen here in America. That's the common term, right? It happens elsewhere, but not in America. We have different kinds of, of persecution. Let me, let me encourage you. Try being really faithful to Christ and really faithful to proclaiming his word, and then let's see what happens. Then let's see how much persecution you endure. Right? Because I'll just tell you from personal experience, I mean, we're talked about, lied about, posted on Facebook about all the time. Right? When I first moved here, I, I won't get into all the details, but I mean, Chad and Marie, remember this? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm reaching, my, we first moved on to this one block, I'm reaching all these neighbors, and, and some of them are coming to Christ, and, and uh, I remember getting a phone call, we were at Walmart, Casey and I, I think we had two kids at the time, and he said, I'm on my way over from the West Bank, my truck is full of guns, and I'm going to kill you. You've gone, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. Telling us about our sin and this one way to heaven. And he was serious. I mean, this, he's, he's crazy, you know? And uh, we're trying to reach him for Christ. And uh, so we ended up at the Wiles house for a couple hours. <laughs> and uh, until, a, until family said they... Talked to him. I mean, he was on his way over across the bridge, on his way from the bridge, on his way on the bridge, and uh, and uh, we stayed there for a couple hours, and, and um, until family said, "Hey, you know, I think we talked him out of this. He's turned around." For the next few nights, I remember being up at night, look, looking out the windows, looking out the doors. I mean, consistently, you know, and um, and we kept going, we kept going, and uh, him, his mom. His stepdad, his uh, brother, his sister-in-law, over the course of time, they all came to Christ, you know? And uh, even this past week, their grandmother died, and they called me to be there. And, um, and you know, and, and so I and, I, and over the course of time, I mean, there's just, I mean, I could give you tons of, of discussions about what, is the, what are the people around you think? Right, the people that come in and out of the church, what the people who, uh, to you know, you might be lied about, you might be misrepresented, you might be um, told that you uh, that you're this way when you're not. You're trying to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, right? Um, been publicly posted about on social media, this place, this guy, this whatever, right? That's. If you are faithful to Christ and you are faithful to his word, this is, the, this is the fate of every single disciple. Why? Because the world is, hates the message. And the one who proclaims the message. Think about this for just one second. We'll move on. Think about this. Jesus and his message was perfect. 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 Absolutely perfect perfect and he was killed by the world think about that it's not your your winsomeness to avoid this it's not your ingenuity it's not your it's your approach that's going to avoid this in fact if you are faithful to christ and his word that will be your consequence his message was perfect and he was killed with the most brutal death in history so Last but not least, he says this, living for Christ, living for him, detached from possessions. So we've seen this. Love your father. Uh, if, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own mother. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. 
So this is loving Christ more than family. He can't be my disciple. There's that term, right? That parallel term that, we've seen, that we see three times. Yet even his own life, and then we see this willingness to suffer, loyalty that endures suffering. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he gives these, listen now, he gives these, these parables. He gives three of them, two in verse one in verse 28, one in uh, verse 31, and then another one in verse 34, talking about uh, not counting the cost and then, um, and then proving to, to be either um, unable to finish um, uh, in over your head or impure, right? But he, he says in verse 33, he gives another one of these costs. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, let me point this out real quick. Briefly, um, the, the, the way in which this is structured, two costs, then these two parables that says that you must assess these costs and, and you got to assess them and then another cost. But he says, um, he says, here are the two costs. And then he says, you know, who, who doesn't uh, count the cost before he starts? And then he says again on the backside, so therefore, again, here's the cost. And so the way that this is structured with this kind of sandwich it says that this is not just like an additional um, supplemental, um, you know, thing for, for assessing true discipleship. This is one of the three costs. This is equal. He's just saying, here's the two costs. Which one of you would start and not assess the cost? So therefore, again, here's the cost, right? So we see this. And he says, uh, he says this phrase, you cannot be my disciple, these three times. So let's start, just look at this. This is fairly easy to understand. He says, so therefore, again, that's the connection to the two parables that I just mentioned. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has. Now, I want us to look at uh, the NASB and what it says in this because I think it's helpful. I think I got it up there for uh, NASB. Um, right after this, there we go. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Both of these are good translations, but it helps clarify what he means by that, by this. That's the NASB's translation. So listen, he says this, none of you, right? Listen, follow this. He says, any one of you in the ESV, none of you, in the NASB, right? Meaning this. It's exactly what he said in verse 26. Look at verse 26. If what? Anyone, and it's exactly what he said in verse 27. Look at it. What does it say? Whoever. It's the same thing. He's saying the same thing in all three statements. He means this to say this is all-encompassing. This applies to everyone. There is no one who is exempt from this. Don't think that you are the exception to the rule. He says, again, cannot be my disciple at the end, which is this, um, this term of salvation. Speaking of soteriology, this is, this, is a, this is him describing the faith commitment required by a person who is going to be saved. So, he says, who does not give up 
all of his possessions or who does not renounce all that he has. Now, I love this because the Greek word apotasomai is a form of the verb apotasso, which means, listen, to give up. To give up. That's where we get the English word, what? You know it? No? Apostasy. Right? To give up. To leave. To abandon. Right? This is the term that he's using here. To set apart. To separate from. Literally, to say adieu. My, when I was thinking about this, I was laughing as I was writing because my son Xander, I always say to him, I said, Xander, you don't even love me. And he says, yes, I do, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I was writing this, to say I do, right? And, um, and I was thinking about that. Uh, it's to depart from or to dismiss. It's to renounce. It's to abandon. abandon. It's to bid farewell. It's to take leave of, to send away, to forsake a previous loyalty, a previous loyalty. It's an act of refusing to continue to follow or continue to obey or to continue to recognize. It's an act of leaving. It's used here in Mark 6. And after he had taken leave of them, that's the the term there, he went up to the mountain to pray. So, Jesus is saying, whoever does not leave, separate from, abandon, and then it says all that he has. It literally means the entirety. And, and the term here is that meaning yourself, the entirety of what yourself and literally has in hand. That's the idea here. That's exactly what he's saying here. Abandoning, separating from the entirety of what you yourself have in hand. What you own, your possessions, what you possess. Right? It's where we get that, the translation. So, what does this mean for us? This is his requirements for you to be his disciple. In addition to the other two things. And all that we see in the New Testament. They all clarify. What does this mean? It means to live detached. It means if you are going to be his disciple, you must consider yourself a steward of everything and an owner of nothing. That's the idea. Detach from. If God gives you things, great. If God blesses you with things, wonderful. If he blesses your finances and your provisions, great. The Bible says that comes from him just as much as poverty does. But the true disciple is never to view them as static. They're not his own. He's detached from them. They've moved into a common pot that he kind of oversees. He uses the house for hospitality. He uses the things to give away. He uses it to help others, to raise the family into godliness. They're given by God But when they are needed to be given, they're given. They're they're used for the local church. 
If you, if you are a Christian and you say, I care about Christ's mission and know this is the way God designed, that the people of God laid their gifts at the apostles' feet who then distributed them as they say, see, uh, saw the needs. And so that they were able to live and to keep ministering to the word. And so if you care about ministering the word, if you care about the, the mission of God and the mission of Christ, it's to use them on each other. You imagine the apostles here, they had to detach completely from what they had. Now, if God gave them something to keep and, and they were to carry it along with them or they were to keep coming back to something, wonderful. But nothing would hinder them from commitment to Christ. You understand? If God said to go to a different place, then it was time to sell off all their stuff and go to a different place. They're, they're, they can easily stay if God decides in your possession, but they can easily be handed over for a neighbor or for the local assembly or for the, the body or for the mission. It's no trouble at all to detach from them, to leave them behind or to give them away. That's to separate yourself from them. And uh, if this makes your stomach hurt to think about your house or your car or your things that you would be, that you would be so, so upset with, if God were to remove that from your possession, then you, then you, have, you have entered into the category that Jesus is, is prohibiting here. He is not your Lord. Your possessions are. You follow Christ anywhere. That's what it will take. His leading, his words. You must use your resources for his service. If God takes them away, then you view them as though they were never yours. You are only a steward in the service of your Lord. That's what it takes to be his disciple. He is your Lord. You love him more than you love your family. At times, the world would view that as hate. You are, you are you, uh, accepting the... the Accusation of, of guilt for being associated to Christ and you're heading towards your execution. Your life is no longer your own. And you have detached from your possessions. Everything about your life is in the service of the Lord Jesus. This is what he is saying. To renounce all of your possessions. To join wholeheartedly to him. This is what must happen. If you believe Jesus offers what he offers. If you believe that. If you believe that he offers what he offers, then there is no greater possession for you to have than to have him. So this will be the overflow of one who has true saving faith. This will be no difficulty. This is just the overflow. You don't ask, a true disciple doesn't ask, how little can I give and still be his disciple? He asks, how much is God worth? And how much does the Lord deserve? And what does he require? Because I will pay it to be his. That's what a true disciple asks. Jesus condemns all half-heartedness. He says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There will be one Lord. This is what caused the rich young ruler to turn away. Remember this? In Luke 18, the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God himself. Basically, do you believe this? 
And you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He said, all these I've kept from my youth. He's unaware of his sin. And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, he said to him, okay, I'm going to show you, let me expose to you your sin. This is not your only sin by any means, but I'm going to expose it to you through this. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have. There it is again. And distribute to the poor. It's not that distributing to the poor saves you. It's that the essence is Jesus was not his treasure. It was evident that he was not his Lord, that he would not make him Lord. He did not believe in his lordship. And uh, when he heard these things, it says in verse 23, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So true disciples are willing to give up all because obedience to, the, to Christ is their greatest duty and their greatest joy. If his kingdom, his mission, his church, his commands are not your highest commitment, he is not your Lord. Something else is your Lord. Other things are your Lord. This is not difficult for us to grasp. It will be evident that he is your Lord and he is your one master when all of your life all of your materials, all of your money are laid down eagerly and willingly to have him as your Lord. So Jesus makes this clear. To be his disciple, you must shift your allegiance to him, his mission, his commands. He, you, you must make him your priority and make all of your possessions subservient to his lordship in your life. That's the mark of a true disciple. Let's pray. Father, we come and I ask you to use your word for the building up of this body, for the equipping of these saints, saints in the room, for the salvation of those who are lost in the room, so that your body might be built up so that these saints might be equipped and these unbelievers may be saved, that they might make the decision to surrender everything to your lordship. And I pray that the believers in this room would continue coming after Christ in the ways that he's laid down. And I pray, God, that as we go out and proclaim the message of the gospel, that this would be the message we proclaim. We would offer a costly but free salvation to the world. We would not speak in euphemisms, rewordings, understatements, but we would be front-loaded with our message declaring to the world around us what he requires. Many will reject it, but that is the only way that others will be saved, is to know the truth. I pray, God, that this would be characteristic of our community, in a community that is so full of false disciples who have made decisions not based upon your requirements for salvation. 
They have made decisions based on rewordings. And Lord, we pray that this would affect us and not only us, but that it would affect our preaching of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.